Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Merry Christmas, uh, everybody. So good to see you guys. Uh, again, I want to say welcome if you're new uh, here at Journey. My name is Dan, and I'm the pastor here. So good to have you during this season. Uh, Christmas is, uh, in essence, the fulfillment of a promise. Um, what we just sang about, the longing and the waiting, um, the people of God for centuries had waited for the arrival of King Jesus. And uh, on that night, where Christ was born, what we still commemorate here in December on the 25th uh, on our calendar, a time when we uh, concentrate and remember the fact that God is one who fulfills promises. And hopefully that's true for you today. Hopefully uh, you have that hope. Uh, if not, we would love the opportunity to share with you uh, the hope that we have in him. Uh, if you uh, hang out here long enough, hopefully you'll find that uh, we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment, not just of that long promise from long ago, but he's also the fulfillment of our hearts, and he gives us the hope and expectation of tomorrow and uh, eternity. And so we, uh, we talk about him, we read his scripture, and we uh, sing to him every week, we pray to him, uh, we gather in groups around that, uh, because we believe that that is the central theme that we can all find our identity in. And the other thing we've been doing today, we're going to finish up a series. Uh, if you hang out here long enough, also, you'll find out that we also teach through series of, uh, of different topics or maybe a book. Uh, well, we spend the last seven weeks, today's uh, week seven of a series we call Deep Truths. And the essence of this series has been, what is uh, the consensus or the general consensus, if you could say there is such a thing, uh, among Christians of all centuries? What are the things that unite us? And uh, we started this series with this quote that said, an essential is unity and non-essential is liberty and in all things charity. That means that there are some things that we believe that we hold as essentials and we hold dear. There's some things that uh, there are people that love God and love scripture that they differ on. Uh, and inside that, we think there's liberty uh, in that. And then there's times when we just really disagree with one another about some details and about different things. But we believe that the character of Christ uh, displayed in his people means that we show charity and love toward all people, even people that we disagree with. And, but we've been focusing on the things that unify us. And uh, one of the things that has, that we're going to finish up with today is that expectation. Just as Christmas was the fulfillment of a promise, uh, we sit and wait for the fulfillment of another promise. And uh, that's why sometimes uh, during this season, we don't just look back to the birth of Christ, but we look forward to his return. And so today we're going to do just that. The deep truth that we're going to focus on today is Christ's physical return and his eternal reign. Christ's physical return and his eternal reign. So today, get your pens, paper, or your thumbs ready. We're going to have a lot of scripture, just like we've done uh, over the course of this. We're going to jump around a lot. Uh, and uh, the nature of this is because it's an overview, we just kind of take a 30,000 view of scripture uh, and try to drop in, parachute into different spots so that you can get to kind of the big, uh, big picture of these things. But uh, today, when we do that, uh, this is going to open up a lot of questions. Uh, this is one of those things like these other topics 
topics that when you leave here, there's a good chance you're going to leave with more questions than you came in. We believe that's a good thing. Uh, we just think what you do with those questions is really important, that you continue to read, you continue to study, you continue to listen and pursue Christ, uh, and that's how we all grow. But let's just start with a word, this word, Advent. Well, it was embedded in one of the songs we just sang. Uh, this is a season of Advent. Typically, we'll start off a sermon, uh, excuse me, a, a, a service with an Advent reading like we did today. Advent comes from a Latin word means Adventus, and this essence of that is the word coming. Uh, and so this is a season of Advent. It's a season where we, where we really focus on the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Um, and, and a lot of times when we think about that, it, it leads us forward, right? Well, the Greek word for Advent is another word. The Greek word is parousia. And uh, this is when um, you read the New Testament. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. It wasn't written in English, newsflash. Uh, it was written in Greek. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, this word shows up several places. And normally where it shows up, it shows up not in reference to the past event of, of, of Christ having come uh, at the incarnation, at the birth narrative, but it looks forward to his second coming. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about specifically the Prusia or the Advent, the second coming of Christ. And I'm going to give you three big points to start this with. And this is going to be very outline formatted, which is really odd to me, but I was trying to kind of be clear in this because, you know, most of the time I'm not clear. So today we're going to try to be clear uh, because there's so many questions with this. But I want to start with one point. And it might be self-evident statement, but Christ will return to earth. This Perusia, this Advent, this coming, this promise is that Christ will return to earth. Now, where do we get that from? Well, let's go to the last scene of Jesus on earth. All right. The last statement of Jesus. Anybody know what the last statement of Jesus was? It's found in Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, Jesus is talking to the disciples that have witnessed the resurrection. And this is the event. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Famous passage, Acts 1.8, uh, tells us kind of a purpose statement. Uh, this tells what's going to happen as the gospel leaves Jerusalem, and it gets all the way to Jonesboro, Arkansas. It gets all the way to here. If you carry that plan out, this is what Jesus said would happen. This is what's happened. But if you hang out in this episode for just a second, and if you can imagine being here and having heard these words of Christ... And then you see what happens in verse 9. This is what happens. After he said this, he was taking, taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly men dressed in white stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, have you ever had an event that has just stuck with you your whole life? I mean, have you ever had, like, I don't, I don't know what it was for you. I don't know if it was a birth of, uh, of your child, or maybe it was your wedding day. Um, I, maybe it was a significant moment. You won a championship, or maybe you met someone famous. I don't know, but you can see the day. You can see the events. Uh, if you can kind of think about that for a second, can you imagine what you just heard? You just heard the last words of Jesus, and what you just saw was you saw Jesus levitate 
move up from your midst, and you've seen some crazy stuff, okay? First of all, you're witnessing someone that's been resurrected from the dead, so at this point, all bets are off what you're going to see from this. You've seen him move through walls. You've seen all these type of things, but now he is moving up into the sky, and can you imagine just being dumbfounded, like just looking at this in awe? Uh, I kind of liken it to some of the footage that I've seen uh, when, when we uh, uh, saw the first uh, rocket uh, blast into space. If you look back at some of that footage, right? And you see people looking up and just kind of in awe that we're shooting these men up into space. Uh, Just this look on their face uh, as they see this unbelievable sight. Well, can you imagine what it would have been like to see Jesus moving up into the clouds? You would have been stuck in a moment. You would have probably just stayed there for just a second to soak all of this in. What in the world is happening? And then on top of that, to top it all off, uh, a couple of angels show up and they say, hey, listen, why are y'all staring into the sky? And to which the answer would probably be, did you not just see this? Of course, angels have seen this kind of thing, but you know, humans, you're like, we're like, we see this all the time. You're like, I haven't seen this, but they say, don't stay right here. The same Jesus that went up is coming back. Now, just as some of those episodes in our lives stick with us and shape us, they're defining moments, this moment defined the early church. And not just the early church, but it has defined Christianity ever since. As much as the cross, as much as the resurrection, as much as the ascension, the promise of that moment that Jesus Christ was coming back in the same way that he left. Now, This wasn't the only time that the disciples had heard this. One quick snapshot, if you back up to John chapter 14, says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. Uh, If that were not so, would I have not told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, there's a whole lot of questions up in here. We're not gonna talk about today pre-tribulation. We're not talking about millennials and we're not gonna talk about all that stuff. We're talking about where we find consensus today. And I want you to focus on that phrase, I will come back. I will come back. Now, if you knew what had just happened, again, we're kind of getting into the narrative here. Uh, Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Uh, Judas has just gone out, left the room after he said that Jesus said, somebody's going to betray me. I I mean, this is a formative moment. And Jesus has just informed them that he's going to go away. Uh, He's about to say that the Holy Spirit's going to come to them, all these type of things. These are formative moments. And embedded in this formative moment, much like the Acts 1 narrative, is this statement, I will come back. Now, these are the promises of Christ himself. These are the promises of the messengers of Christ. And then ultimately, if you were to fast forward to the last book of the Bible, there are three clear statements in Roman, I mean, excuse me, Revelation chapter 22, in chapter 22, verses 7, verses 12, and verse 20, where the vision that John takes is from the mouth of God himself, where Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. If you skip down to verse 12, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they've done. I am the alpha and the making, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then finally, down into verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, 
I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And this is how the whole story ends. And so can you see it? You, you, you see the last moment where Jesus ascends into the clouds. You see it right before his crucifixion, formative moment. And then the last words of Scripture uh, out of uh, this book that we call holy and inerrant, the Word of God is, I am coming. I am coming back and I am coming soon. So if this, let me just ask you a question. If this, if you were an early Christian, if you were like a first century Christian, not a, a 21st century one, but if you were a first century Christian, and you had witnessed all these things. And think about the compressed timeline for just a second. I mean, you had, uh, uh, there's about three years of public ministry of Jesus. The crucifixion happens. Three days after that, uh, Jesus is resurrected from the de dead. Uh, then he ascends up into the clouds. And 50 days after that is Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And you had heard that Jesus is coming back. How would you live your life? You would live your life with the expectation of this compressed timeline that, that Jesus is probably coming back just any second. Like, I mean, I mean, he was here, he was not here, he's coming back. He didn't say how long, except that we heard that he's coming back soon. And so how would you live your life? You would live your life with a level of expectation awaiting the return of the Messiah. Now, this is important for us because get into the mindset again that they're thinking the Messiah is the king. The Messiah is the one that's coming to rule and to reign. And so they're awaiting him much like, uh, much like they had awaited the birth of Jesus. They're waiting for him to come back. What are they waiting for him to do? They're waiting for him to install his earthly rule and his reign, the, to bring the kingdom to fruition. And so there was this heightened expectation. There was this longing for everything to kind of consummate and come together. And so it created an expectation that permeated the early church. Um, matter of fact, if you, if you look into one of Paul's letters in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, then what happened was it, it really points to this, this kind of this era of expectation. And this is what Paul told this church at Thessalonica. He said, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven, there it is, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, there's a lot embedded in, in this whole passage and in this whole, the whole story of uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. But again, just focusing on this expectation element, um, Paul reinforces the idea that Jesus is going to return. He's going to come back. And look at the way he describes it. Think about this, uh, this air of kingdom language that Jesus being the Messiah, the King, the Lord, he's coming back. Um, if you were a, a Jewish person, you would have had liturgies uh, uh, that you would have recited uh, to this effect. There would be the, the, this expectation that when the King returns, you're going to welcome him back in. There, this is sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. This is sprinkled into the New Testament. And, and Paul picks up on this idea this expectation idea, and he picks up on um, this, this way of expressing what Jesus is about to do. Now, Jesus is leaving heaven in this passage, and where's he going, class? Where's he coming? Where's he coming? 
He's coming here, right? All right, not a trick question. Okay, you're like, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure. You know, he's coming back. That's, what, that's the whole point up to here. He's coming back. He's coming here. And what does it say? That, that we will be caught up, those who are alive, will be caught up with him in the air. Now, uh, around the 1800s, uh, somebody picked up on uh, this idea and started to actually um, come up with this idea of a rapture, where in this passage, it tells us that we're going to be meeting him in the air and we're going to be shot out and go somewhere else. But that's not the direction that Jesus is headed. If we're going to be with Jesus, where's Jesus coming, class? He's coming here. Good job. He's coming here. And so this air of expectation was what, what they would have picked up on when a returning king would come. What would they do? They would put watchmen on the walls of the city and a king that had been off in battle that was returning back home, they would announce that the king was coming back and they would then as you would do to show honor, respect, and to fulfillment of the expectation, you would send a welcoming party out to me. And you wouldn't wait for him to get to the gate. You would come and you would line the streets. You would cheer and chant his name. And you would welcome the king back into the city. And, and so for the early church, uh, all the way up until about the 1800s, the church pretty much unanimously in consensus understood this to mean that the, the people of God would look to Jesus coming, go out to meet him, and then welcome him back into the place where, his, where he was going to be enthroned, where he was going to rule and he was going to reign. And so Paul drops this language in into this letter to the Thessalonians because he wants to remind them that Jesus is not just coming back, but he's coming back to rule and he's coming back to reign. And he wanted them to encourage one another with these words. Now, why would they want to encourage one another? Because what they saw is what you see. Um, what you see a lot of times is you see what we experienced this, this past week with tornadoes and the horrific effects of that. We see nursing homes that are demolished. We see factories that are demolished. We see homes that are demolished. And some of you have lived through that and are still traumatized by what happened two years ago right here. Um, some of you have, we enter into a Christmas season where it's not a joyful time for you. It, it, it's a time where you remember a lost loved one or you're struggling financially or um, maybe you're struggling with a diagnosis. You, you, there's all these types of things that we live in, and sometimes it's easy for us to lose sight of the expectation that when he, Jesus comes, he is coming back to rule and to reign. And it's real easy, let's just be honest, to get distracted. It's, it's real easy to get discouraged uh, in this world. And when that happens, it's easy to start to, start to question whether or not Jesus is really coming back or not. And just as much as there was an air in the early church of expectation, there was also an air of cynicism in the early church. It was not a utopia. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Peter uh, expressly dealt with the cynicism of his day because Christ's return from the outset was questioned. And so Paul instructed a, a group of believers this way in 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this, quote unquote, coming, this parousia that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on 
as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, have you ever heard anything like that? Yeah. Have you ever said anything like that? Now, don't lie, this is church. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe you've said that. Everything just doesn't, it just seems like we're just going on. Like, how many years has it been? I mean, it's 2021. It's been, what, 2,000 years? A little over 2,000 years? It's easy, especially in a modern Western mindset for us, I think, because we're so, uh, everything's happened so fast for us. Like, I mean, microwaves and texting and instant access to everything. Well, everything should happen really quick. It's easy for us to become very cynical. And we live in a very cynical age, but that's not new. Um, the, the early church was birthed into a world of cynicism and questioning. And so if you, if you think, well, it, we're only questioning the return because it's been 2,000 years, well, guess what? It had only been a few years, and they were already questioning uh, as well. Because this is the nature of expectation. The nature of expectation is waiting. Uh, it, it's waiting and waiting in hope. And so this grounds us to help us to understand what do you do with these questions and why is Jesus, if he says he's coming, why isn't he waiting? Why is he waiting, excuse me? Why isn't he coming? Well, watch what Peter says. Let's finish out his thought real quick before we move on. It says that in verse five, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So what does is, what is Peter allude to? He alludes to some factors that Scripture affirms over and over again that there's going to be a return, there's going to be a judgment, and there's going to be an eternal reign. And so he says that, hey, you know, it's, uh, you got to gotta remember that part of the return for, for Jesus is easy for, to get, uh, easy for us to forget. Part of that return includes within the package judgment of evil and sin. Now, keep in mind that in mind for a second. And let's think about the character of God as Peter finishes his thought. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. So first of all, he just says, listen, you don't even understand time, okay? You didn't create it. You live within it. You don't understand it. But instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So what is the motivation for the patience of Jesus in his return? The motivation for Jesus' return and the reason it takes a long time from Peter's estimation is that he wants every single person, as many people as can possibly experience the forgiveness through repentance, to give their lives to Jesus. More time means more people have the opportunity to experience the goodness of God. And because of the character of God, because of the character of God, he wants everyone to enter into this kingdom with him. He doesn't want to come alone. And it's easy within the cynicism and the slowness and the time for us not only to lose the expectation and the hope that's included, but it's also easy for us to lose the mission of what this whole thing is about to begin with. 
What is Christmas about? What's the crucifixion about? What's the resurrection about? What's the second coming about? It, it's about the reconnection of God with humans. It's a reaffirmation of what it's supposed to be like for God to create uh, it's in goodness and life and all the things that mean peace and shalom for the world that he's created. And he wants you to experience that. He wants the people outside of here to experience that. He doesn't just want it to be to a select few. He wants everyone to have the opportunity to come to repentance and have a relationship with himself. Because just as John would have said in John chapter 17, verse 3, is this is actually what eternal life is. Eternal life is actually not about time alone. It's about a relationship with Jesus. This is what it means to have eternal life, is to know Jesus and to know the Father, to actually be in a relationship that's whole, that's healthy, that's life-giving, and that is good. Now, some people have picked up on this and, and, and within, within this passage where it says that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And they take that very, very literally. And some people have uh, taken that and used that and dropped that into like the Genesis narrative uh, where they'll say, okay, well, each one of the days is like a thousand years. And so people come up with all these really creative math uh, techniques to, to figure out exactly when Jesus is coming back and uh, what all this stuff means and all these generations and people are looking for the signs. Uh, let me just kind of tell you my opinion on that. And for one, I don't think you can do that. All right, scripture doesn't tell us to do that. As a matter of fact, Jesus in Matthew 24 says that no one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return, not even the sun. So if Jesus doesn't know, then I don't think some guy with a mural on his stage is going to know either. I, I don't think, and I don't mean that to be crass, I'm not trying to insult anybody, I'm just trying to speak really plainly, is that we spend a lot of times trying to figure out what, are we in the last days? The answer is yes, guess how long we've been in them? Since Acts chapter one, we've been in the last days. The last days doesn't mean a very special time within the very last moments before Jesus comes back. Last days is simply the season of time, the bookends between the first coming and the second coming. And that's where we live. And so how do we live? We live with expectation, we downplay cynicism, and we live on mission to love people and to bring in the kingdom of God as an outpost of what the future reality will be. Which leads us to our second point. Our second big point is when Christ returns, he will completely manifest the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, that is already at work within history. Now, I'm going to get, leave that up there for just a second because that's a lot to write down. I know it's a long point, but it's a, it's a long sentence. When Christ returns, he will completely manifest the rule and reign of God, which is called the kingdom of God, that is already at work within history. That means that the kingdom of God, when we talk about it, um, has some interesting parts to it. Um, when you read the Gospels, specifically, like when you read Matthew, it's typically called the, the kingdom of heaven. Um, the other Gospel writers usually call it the kingdom of God. They're, they're used interchangeably, and they just basically mean that the king, the Messiah has come, Christmas, okay, the, the king has come. But then we have to look at the progression of this, because just like in our modern day, I mean, it's, it's kind of like... Um, 
It doesn't work as a direct correlation or direct analogy or illustration, but you can kind of see it because it's our world, is that there's, there's, when, when there is an election for a president, there's typically like, okay, there's an announcement that there's a, there's a president coming, there's an inauguration, and then there's a time when that is consummated, it's fulfilled, they're in office, they're actually operating in that position, okay? So if you can kind of use that loosely as somewhat of a way to understand how, how this takes place, well, the same thing happened with Jesus, this kingdom that we're living in. We, we would say we're living in the kingdom of God. Uh, as Jesus instructed, we're praying for the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to model what the kingdom looks like and how it looks different than our culture right now, the way that we love each other, the way we share, uh, the way we give, all these different things. We're supposed to model because we're learning how to live under the rule and reign of God. Well, how did that all start? Well, first, Christ's kingdom was first announced, okay? Uh, John, the baptizer, in those days, in Matthew 3, 2, says that he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he said this, repent for the kingdom of God, uh, excuse me, the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. And he says this, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So much like that uh, Thessalonian passage where we're going out, there's a watchman on the wall, we see that the king is coming. Well, this picks up on some imagery from the Old Testament as well, from Isaiah. And Isaiah said that uh, there's going to be one that goes before Jesus to tell everybody, hey, the king is coming. And we now know that to be John the baptizer. Some people call him John the Baptist. Uh, he was the one that uh, right before Jesus came, he was uh, the one that announced that Jesus, the king, was arriving. Well, on into Matthew's gospel, if you turn the page, the kingdom that was announced was then inaugurated. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That means that, hey, I'm coming, I'm inaugurating the kingdom of heaven. When you see me, you've seen what the kingdom looks like. And when you see the miracles, when you hear how he taught, like the Sermon on the Mount that came right after this, this is how the kingdom of God looks. This is how it's manifest. This is what it looks like when the king that is good and right and whole, this is what it looks like when he comes. And so he inaugurates the kingdom of heaven, but that was a very localized moment right? And so when he is crucified, then he's resurrected, he ascends. Now we live in the time where Christ has been exalted, all right? He's reigning right now, but we also, again, the cynicism, we look around and we say, hey, things, they still don't look completely right. That's because Jesus is not finished. We look forward to the consummation where the full realization of his kingdom will be seen by all. All right. If you look at the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, this is Paul's famous passage. And the, this is just one of the little sections in it where it, it, it alludes to the fact that Christ is reigning now, but he will consummate his kingdom into the future. And this is what he says, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15. When he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay? Uh, our biggest enemy, our biggest enemy, the thing that we're all subject to uh, because of our sin is death. And so what is Jesus doing? Jesus is waging war. 
Jesus is coming for victory. And what he has done through the victory of the cross and the resurrection, now in waiting, he's inviting others into his kingdom and he is eradicating evil because he's reigning victorious over it. And so that causes us to look forward, right? Because that's where the hope and that's where the expectation is. All the things that make us cynical, all the pain, all the death, all the suffering, all the sickness, all those things that right now plague us. When we look forward to the future, what do we see? We see a God who is reigning, who pushes away all the evil and all the sickness and all the death. And what does he give us in return? Well, that's the third point. In the end, God will create a new heaven and a new earth that will endure forever. A new heaven and a new earth. What's the end look like? Well, the end does not look like us getting transported out of here. The end does not look like us being disembodied spirits floating around on clouds. Uh, It is a very physical, tangible presence of God with humans back to what was subjected to uh, futility, everything that was subject to destruction, God is rebuilding and remaking everything new. And that's not just us, that's creation itself. Famous passage um, in Romans chapter eight. Uh, This is where Paul talks about the fact that all creation will be liberated and renewed. For the creation awaits an eager expectation. So not only we live in expectation, it says that the trees, the world, everything waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to the decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So it's almost like um, creation is along for the ride. And that makes sense because if you go back to the Genesis account, Genesis 1 and 2, um, men and women were given the rule and reign over creation to be God's image bearers within creation. They're supposed to cultivate, care for creation. And so when they sinned, it didn't just affect them. And it didn't just affect their interpersonal relationships. It didn't just affect their relationship with God. It says that it subjected the whole creation itself to futility, to destruction. And it had no choice in the matter. That means all the pain and all the suffering that is not just by your choice, but the thing you live in, the choices of those that have gone before you, all the things that were fractured and broken that now we just have to deal with and the decisions we're making that generations after us have to deal with. And there's a thousand upon thousand upon million upon million upon a billion upon a billion upon a trillion upon a trillion decisions that it actually affects creation itself. And guess what creation is longing? Remember the, some of the, the imagery in the, Old Te- in, in the Old Testament that says the rocks will cry out and the trees will cry out. And you, you see creation actually praising God for who he is. And so for us to actually enter in and say, well, we have been given as image bearers something to say and something to do as responsible image bearers of Christ within creation itself that when we follow Christ, when we enter into that, then we're actually ushering in this new kingdom. 
Now, this is huge, right? I mean, this is huge. This is a different way of living than just, hey, pray your prayer, punch your card, get out of hell free card. This is saying that what you do matters. This, this is saying that um, what God is doing is he, is he is not just punching the card and all this. He's going to destroy evil. And what's he going to do from the ashes? He's going to bring beauty from the ashes of all that. And that is what creates the expectation and the motivation for us to say, when he stepped into the darkness, he brought light. When he steps into our hearts, he brings light. When we operate together in unity around the gospel with the expectation of the second coming of Christ, when we actually love, when we actually serve, a lot like what I saw yesterday or what I heard about yesterday with uh, our Christmas marketplace as many of you guys served to, to help families come in during a Christmas season to supply joy for families that wouldn't be able to do that otherwise. Many of you that have served with uh, or are going to serve even this week with the tornado uh, victims in, in our surrounding area. Uh, little things, when, when you care for those that are closest to you, when you sacrifice financially for those that need it, when you could use it for yourself, all these things, all these things are ways for us to enter into the new creation right now. Because ultimately, what is God going to do for eternity? He's physically returning and he's going to reign eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's how the story ends in Revelation 21. There's a lot of uh, crazy stuff in Revelations that you have to dig into, but let's just look at how it ends. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Let's move on to the next verse. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. He's come back. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then finish up with this. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and they're true. God made a promise. What did he promise? He promised that he's coming back physically and that he's gonna reign eternally. And he says, I'm making everything new. Now, if you, if you dig into the language of that, that is not a one and done deal. That means that from here forward, like when, when Jesus returns, that the progression, much like um, decay in reverse, if you think about it this way, is the way I see it, is like um, what was subjected to futility and devastated to destruction in creation, where everything continually decays and gets worse. I mean, you can see that with the, the new car you bought, you know, uh, several years ago. It's not new anymore. It's decaying. You know what I mean? The house you built a few years ago, you're, you're having to work on it. It's, it you're going to make repairs on it. Things don't stay, you know? Uh, if you want more evidence, just look in the mirror, you know, things don't stay <laughs> the way they're supposed to. But here's the thing, in reverse, in reverse, he's not saying I made everything new. He says I'm making everything new. So think about this for a second. Think about in the future, what would it be like uh, if you could just think about the, 
uh, it's kind of a, just a mental exercise for you. Think about one of the best moments of your life, okay? Again, I, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it was when you first fell in love. I don't know if it was uh, uh, when, when your child was born, whatever, whatever the thing was. Remember how you felt, just kind of a touch of that? You know, that's why we do Christmas. Sometimes it's a nostalgic thing. It kind of reminds us of that. But let's just mental exercise for a second. Think about the greatest moment that you can remember for a second. Now, if you could bottle that, okay? And if you could multiply that, and if the future of your life was not a one and done moment, but what if every moment into the future for eternity was bathed in hope and newness? What if it was a new moment and a new moment and a new moment? And this makes sense because if Jesus is eternal and if Jesus is magnificent, then wouldn't it take an eternity to soak in all the goodness and all the glory of who he is. And so our hope is not just an eternal church service in the sky. It's not you designing your, your favorite hymns in order or your favorite songs in order or your favorite liturgy in order. It, it's about the experience of what you were created for and what I was created for and us sharing in this together where we soak in the goodness of God and we are reinstalled within his creation to live out our days knowing and being known by our creator. No more subject to futility in creation, no more strife in relationships, and no more war with God. All shalom, all peace. This is Christmas, this is Advent, this is the parousia, this is the second coming of Christ. And how can we know that this is going to happen? Well, these words are trustworthy and they're true. And so this is where we end, 2 Corinthians chapter one. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God has set a guarantee in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that will usher us into the eternal presence of God. And with that, darkness is dispelled and hope has come. It's Christmas. Let's bow and pray. Father, we thank you today that you've come. We thank you that you are a God of promises, that you are faithful and true, and that all your promises were made yes in Jesus. And so during this season, God, we celebrate, not just because it's this time of year, but we celebrate the hope that we have and the future that we have, that you stepped into darkness, you stepped into night, you stepped into sin, you stepped into evil, you stepped into confusion, you stepped into sickness, and suffering and you brought life and you're not done Jesus and we're not finished either we want to enjoy you but not for ourselves we want to live with hope that would fuel us to be bearers of that hope and bearers of that light 
so that we could rejoice not just as individuals and not just as a church, God, but we could gather together with churches all around this area, all around the world of different tribes and different tongues. And we could welcome others into your kingdom. Thank you for your patience, God. Thank you for waiting. Thank you that your desire is that all could experience that new life that you're bringing. And so, Lord, give us that hope today. In Jesus' name, amen.